This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Welcome, everyone. We continue on here in the in the slog toward November 3rd, and uh, I have a very special guest with me here today. We're not going to talk about Donald Trump uh, uh, today. Don't don't turn the podcast off yet. Uh, but as I've told you, I, there's just other issues. You know, there are things going on that we have to pay attention to, even while we're getting rid of Trump. And so I thought this could be one of the, one of these days. So therefore, I am going to finally get to the author of an investigative piece that uh, was published last month. So the investigative reporter, Max Blumenthal, I'm sure you've heard of him. He's been around for a number of years. Uh, Max is an award-winning investigative journalist and um, a best-selling author. Uh, his writing has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Columbia Journalism Review. Um, his best-selling books have included Republican Gomorrah, Inside the Movement that Shattered the Party. Uh, now, this book, this was written 11 years ago. This is long before Trump. It's a deeply reported look at the fundamentalists and the wackadoodles that it took over the Republican Party and eventually brought us Donald J. Trump. Uh, incredible, incredible book, Republican Gomorrah. Um, his next book was Goliath, Life and Loathing in Greater Israel. Uh, in this one, Max Blumenthal uh, immerses himself uh, in the right-wing violent religious fundamentalist movement uh, in Israel, and in, in essentially the movement that has taken over Israeli politics, given us uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the sad, sad state of affairs in the state of Israel. Um, he also wrote the 51 day war. You don't know the 51 day war. Yes, of course not. It's not really made it into the history books yet. Uh, this was back in 2014, the devastating, um, uh, Israeli bombardment of the Gaza Strip. And, and, uh, this is what this incredible book uh, is about. Um, his most recent book, which I have not read, uh, yet is called the management of savagery, how America's national security state fueled the rise of Al Qaeda. ISIS, and Donald Trump. In 2015, Max Blumenthal founded The Gray Zone. I'm sure you've heard of this. This is, If you have not, you've got to uh, uh, bookmark The Gray Zone. It's this uh, fiercely independent site that covers all aspects of the American empire and our impact, uh, both abroad here and at home, as an empire. Uh, but it's so much great investigative reporting that goes on in The Gray Zone. And that's spelled G-R-A-Y-Z-O-N-E. It challenges our, our military-industrial complex, our political elites, the corporate media. And hold on, the gray zone has been very willing to challenge liberals and progressives and the institutional left. You know, that's not allowed. But Max has just stood there for the truth. And this will be the very first time that uh, we speak to each other. And he's here because last month he did this incredible, explosive 8,000-word investigation into the big green capitalist environmental movement, uh, namely the people, groups, and institutions that tried to censor and stop Planet of the Humans and smear its director, Jeff Gibbs, uh, and a little bit of smearing of, of myself. Unfortunately for them, it didn't work. 
just on our YouTube channel alone. And this is where you can you can still see it for free on my YouTube channel, Michael Moore YouTube channel. It hit the 10 million mark on Friday. On all the other sites combined, we have a, a metered uh, number of another 2.3 million views that we also gave permission to any for everybody and anybody to just pass it around, put it on their site. No permission necessary, no money, just do it. Just get the word out to people. So there's a few more million views that we can't even uh, officially count yet, but 12.3 million is the number we're at uh, this weekend, in large part because uh, the uh, certain leaders of our, some of our environmental groups uh, decided to try to prevent this film from, from being seen. And uh, they failed miserably. So this piece that I'm referring to by Max Blumenthal, it's now up on the gray zone and I've linked to it right here on my podcast page. So you can read it later. And I am now very pleased uh, to introduce to you and to myself for the first time, Mr. Max Blumenthal. Max, how are you? I'm great, especially after that really warm introduction. Thanks so much for that. Max, where did you come from on this? How did you first, what happened when you said to yourself, man, this is kind of weird. I want to check into this. Can we just start there in terms of, of, of what happened that led to this piece? Uh, if I could just read the headline on, on the gray zone, how green billionaires backed professional activist network that led to the suppression of planet of the humans. Well, that, that, that's a great question, Michael. The gray zone, which you can, as you said, you can read it at thegrayzone.com. That's my, the website I founded. Um, you know, we have four full-time contributors, including myself and just contributors from around the world. Um, and we even have a Spanish section. And what we tend to focus on is empire and how empire works. And, you know, what, what is the American empire? What it really is, is a projection of capitalism around the world uh, using the vast power of the American military, as well as information warfare, the media, even soft power like Hollywood, uh, to ensure the complete hegemony of the United States and its allies in order to keep markets open for the companies that stand behind uh, the figureheads in our government. And so it was sort of inevitable, I think, that we would start looking into issues that relate to the environment and climate change. Because when we think of the environment we ha- and how to save it, we have to look at the existing power structures. We have to look at capital and how it's exploiting the earth. And then we have to look for radical alternative solutions. But we have to have a systemic approach. So I think that's you know, that's what Planet of the Humans did. I thought that was why it was so important as a film was that it went beyond just, you know, the, the, the policy discussions that we hear in the presidential and vice presidential debates and really looked at the core issue of growth and consumption and then raked the mainstream, big green environmental NGOs and professional advocates over the coals for getting in bed with the billionaire class and essentially advancing a capitalist solution to a problem that is essentially created by capitalism. And so when I saw this attempt to snow the film under, to just completely demolish it and prevent it from reaching an audience, first through this attempt by Josh Fox to get the film retracted through his open letter, 
um, without, I mean, it, it appeared to me that many of the people who signed the, that letter hadn't even seen it. That was my first thought when I saw some of those names. Yeah. I mean, I know Naomi Klein. There's no way she's seen this film. She wouldn't have, why would she sign that letter? Right. And so getting back to how I, you know, how this, this controversy or manufactured controversy piqued my interest aside from, you know, seeing the film as a really important educational tool to mobilize people and move them in the right direction. I also felt that the censorship campaign or the suppression campaign, whatever you want to call it, it just felt so familiar to me because of my own work. So I was familiar with that viciousness and I saw that viciousness replicated in the campaign to censor Planet of the Humans, which I saw also as a really important vehicle for mobilizing people to take the right kind of action to save the planet, to confront this rapacious economic system that was destroying it. And when I looked deeper and started to peel back the different layers of the onion, what it felt like was an industry campaign, a campaign by the people who sought to profit from the renewables industry and a transition to from fossil fuels to renewables that's worth about $50 trillion to many of the Wall Street investors who are backing this big green um, environmental lobby that I, w- I think would be appropriately referred to as a climate cartel. And so that's where my investigation began, and it took me to so many places. But it, was, it, it all remained in the general box of what we do at the gray zone, which is to look at the kind of um, you know, the, the economic and power structures behind empire and try to mobilize people to think critically about the propaganda and information warfare that's bombarding them on a daily basis. Well, in this article, that's exactly what you set off to do. And you discover that the critics of the film are people who have, um, have been proxies, I guess is one word, um, who've been co-opted in some ways by uh, these large companies you know, all the, the, the oil and the gas industry, all that, they, you see their commercials on TV. They're all green. They're all for green. Yeah. They're all pro green. The car companies, they're all got the electric cars. Everybody's, everybody's pro green. And there is, like you said, I don't know how, what kind of billion or trillion dollar industry is, uh, uh, uh trying to make money off trying to pretend that they're saving the earth. When there, that is not what is going on. And this is what just drove us so crazy. And we thought, boy, people are not going to like to hear this bad news. And how did you just, just discover all this of what's behind these so-called environmental groups and some of their leaders, not all of them, but just how they, for whatever reason, decided somewhere along the way, it was going to be easier to take the money than not take the money. Easier to be in bed with Wall Street than not be in bed with them. Right. I mean, it, it, it's surprising, and it was surprising to a lot of uh, even my own readers um, to see someone like Bill McKibben at the center. It's Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org. He's sort of the guru of the climate justice cart, uh, movement, if you want to call it that. Um, and he was also someone who was treated very critically in Planet of the Humans, and I think you know accurately. But Bill McKibben is someone who has criticized this model of consumptive, endless capitalist growth. For example, there's a book called Prosperity Without Growth 
by a writer and thinker, public intellectual named Tim Jackson. And it's about kind of starting the conversation on how growth, economic growth is destroying the planet and how while economists like the good people who brought us the 2008 financial crash that led to you know 10, 000, tens of thousands of suicides and massive amounts of evictions, those good people who love uh, complex financial derivatives, how they have different interests than ecologists and that in order the probably the only way to save the planet to live on a planet with biodiversity is to stop endless growth and endless consumption it seems like a very sensible book it might be hard to you know sell it in the american political system but it's important to get the conversation started and bill mckibben blurbed that book here's what he wrote he wrote endless growth on a finite planet or endless misery spreading recession both represent impossible futures here are some very power, powerful steps towards a possible, indeed, a very hopeful alternative outcome. So that sounds sensible. But then the Bill McKibben that exists in the real world is moving in a completely different direction and making accommodations with billionaires and with elite billionaire-run foundations who back his 350.org. He's appearing in Planet of the Humans in a very gut-wrenching scene on stage with a former Goldman Sachs CEO named David Blood, who runs the generation investment management firm with Al Gore, which is all about, in their own words, preserving capitalism and promoting a sort of green form of capitalism that allows endless growth to continue by promoting investments in renewable-oriented companies and then unlocking that $50 trillion profit center. They appeared together on stage at a 2013 conference and Bill McKibben was nodding his head in a three-piece suit across from David Blood saying, you know, depends on what kind of will we can mobilize to make, to advance this agenda. I mean, David Blood is someone who has said that what he's doing with his investment firm with Al Gore is making the case for long-term greed. That doesn't sound like challenging this growth model that is destroying the earth. And that's why I think Bill McKibben came at this film so hard because it exposed that hypocrisy, the gap between what he says and what he's actually doing. I mean, he was at an, this event was sponsored by Pacific Gas and Electric. It had Bank of America sponsorship. And then, you know, I think one of the most provocative parts of Planet of the Humans was um, to go after the strategy that 350.org, Bill McKibben, and many of his allies, including Naomi Klein, who went after the film, have and Josh Fox, who led the, uh, the sign-on open letter calling for the film to be retracted, have been employing, which is divestment from fossil fuels. It, it was absolutely amazing to see Jeff Seen about the um, Green Century Investment Fund which is endorsed explicitly by Bill McKibben as a guide for you, the individual investor who wants to learn more and take action. Now, that if you invest in green century funds, you think that you are investing in something that is completely free of fossil fuels. And you think, well, this is pretty good. I mean, this is what we should be doing. And we can continue to make investments in Wall Street and continue to have this capitalist model and continue to have endless consumption but we're not supporting those bad guys 
who are destroying the earth. The only problem is that all they did at Green Century Funds was move investments from from oil and gas into oil and gas infrastructure companies, mining companies, uh, Archer Daniels Midland, which is a biofuel giant, McDonald's, the you know largest meat exploiter in the world, Coca-Cola, which is the largest proliferator of plastic pollution, logging, big, and then you know the big banks, Bank of America and HSBC, who brought us the financial crisis. So they're all this fund. This is this is the fund that Bill McKibben was uh, endorsing. And currently endorses it. Yeah. There was no response to that. I mean, that's clearly why they were just like, retract this film because they had no response to it. Because they don't want the public to know that that they too are part of this system. That the, at the core of why this planet is dying is because of the greed, is because of capitalism and, the, and, the, and those who are trying to make money off, off the precious resources that the earth has. And, and they did not want, they did, I, I mean, you could just, in all their articles and I in them, they just kept saying, you know, that we're just myself and Jeff Gibbs and Ozzy, um, we're, we're, uh, I, I don't even want to repeat some of the things they said. It was just all kinds of names, you know, awful stuff. And, and here we're the ones saying, no, actually we're trying to inform the public that the leadership that they're following and some of these groups that they're following are not the ones that are going to fix this problem because in a sense, they're part of the problem because they believe in these investments in, in, in companies that are causing this harm. And, and they also did not want the film to show that you can't have green, green things without destroying the environment. Renewables, you, every solar panel and windmill requires fossil fuels to build it. And of course they'll say, well, it requires less. Well, less or whatever the number is. The, the point is we all agree, don't we, that there is a finite amount of these uh, natural resources available on the planet earth. And at some point we will run out. Well, I, yeah, I think that's, that is also the other provocative aspect of the film. And I want to get into that in a second, but I think it's important just to bring home my last point, I think it's important for listeners to understand the term greenwashing. Um, this is a, a common practice that corporate America uses, um, especially the most pernicious corporate behemoths destroying the earth, where they burnish the reputation among a progressive audience by embracing cosmetic reforms that do nothing to challenge their bottom lines. And in this case, they get the stamp of approval from the Green Century Fund and Bill McKibben. McDonald's, for example, it managed to stay part of the fund by restricting the use of antibiotics antibiotics in its beef and chicken supply chains, which is like, whatever. It doesn't stop them from destroying, from, from relying on beef that's destroying the Amazon forest. Um, the same thing with um, Royal Caribbean Cruises, which has the it's, it, it owns the most environmentally toxic cruise liner on earth, and it's part of the Green Century Funds. All they did was just say, we're going to uh, you know, look into how uh, we obtain our, we dispose of our food and attempt to do a better job of it. So greenwashing is at the heart of th- this. When you look at the partnership between corporate America and these professional climate activists, 
Uh, 350.org, the organization of Bill McKibben, was essentially set up by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. This is a gigantic foundation with the Rockefeller family name on it. Bears the legacy of a family that made its fortune in oil and is now investing lots into the so-called climate justice movement. They have $1.2 billion in assets, and those assets are invested in Wall Street. So they're essentially a a foundation which is helping to determine the agenda of these environmental and big green groups from a top-down basis. Basically, founding, helping found and fund groups for figures like McKibben and his allies. And when McKibben and Josh Fox and company started advancing fossil fuel divestment, they put pressure on the Rockefeller Brothers Fund to divest. So they did. Um, and they went green. And so I took a look at their investment portfolio. And leaving aside the fact that it's just a who's who of you know Wall Street corporations, you have Halliburton, the oil services giant, still in their portfolio, along with Interpipeline Limited, which is owned by the Koch brothers, and Caterpillar, whose bulldozers are easily found at scenes of deforestation around the world. And I've seen them at Palestinian home demolitions. So again, it's greenwashing. You get a few fossil fuel companies out of there, but you continue this capitalist model of growth and rapacious destruction of the earth. And then you get to appear, Stephen Hines, the head of the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation, gets to appear alongside 350.org's, um, one of its directors, May Bouv, uh, announcing that they have gone green, which is just a complete lie. So again, that's such an important theme of this film is greenwashing and how the public is basically being lied to about what green is. Then beyond that, you brought up the issue of renewable energy and whether it is actually clean or not. And that's been a subject of the work of Ozzy Zayner, his book, Green Illusions, Inspired Planet of the Humans. And uh, he effectively showed in his book and in this film how Renewable forms of energy like solar, wind, um, hydroelectric are not necessarily renewable. They're certainly not as clean as we think they are. And we need to ask questions about, first of all, we can say that you know these can be forms of energy that can be productive uh, in, a, in an energy diversified economy. We need to ask the question, can we power the United States economy along this endless growth model of capitalism on entirely renewable energy forms and A, not continue to exploit the earth, destroy the environment, and B, actually provide the energy that's necessary to do it. And in both cases, the answer is quite clearly no. And that's something you're just not allowed to say, particularly in progressive circles, because it calls into question the entire concept of the Green New Deal, which, you know, I don't think we've sufficiently interrogated from the left. I mean, Mike Pence is out there attacking it left and right uh, because he's in bed with the fossil fuel industry, but there's also a left-wing critique of it. And I think Planet of the Humans put that forward and that's very subversive. And we know what I have said to my friends Green New Deal uh, friends is first of all you're on the right path. Uh, you're not doing. You're not. You're not 
some evil corporation. This is a good thing, but but we've got to have a discussion. And you know, and and, and frankly, AOC, she said right at the very beginning when she presented her Green New Deal, is that this is a work in progress. She welcomes and wants the input of other people. So I personally want to give that input. I think others do because we want to make sure that this time we don't put all our eggs in one basket and then we're screwed because we didn't think this thing out. This thing where they've got New York State, uh, you know, some of these groups brag about how they convinced the New York State to, uh, we're going to be all renewable here by 2035 or whatever the date is. I can't remember. And that, and that we're going to, and we're going to do a lot of this with windmills. And then somebody did the math and they said, yeah, but to, to, to do what they're claiming, what New York state is claiming to do with wind. Uh, in other words, New York state will give up 2% of its land mass to windmills. That's what they said. And yeah, that may seem like a small amount. 2% of New York state is 1,100 square, 1,100 square miles of windmills. Right. There's no, everybody just stop, pause for a second. Use your common sense. There's no way that that will happen. There's no way that it can happen. And to, and if it could happen, what kind of savagery would have to take place to the environment to clear that land, to put these massive wind farms up, and then to use fossil fuels to build the windmills? And again, Max, what's your answer to people when they, when they say, well, yeah, but you'll use less fossil fuels than if you just we're um, using, uh, say, coal or, you know, it's a cleaner way to do it by using the, by building windmills whose blades are a football field long and, um, and only last for so many years. I mean, you, you know, you're, you've come into this new and fresh. So I'm just curious from your own investigation, how do you respond to this, to this, uh, well, my renewables are more renewable than the other forms of energy. So, Yes, it does take some fossil fuels, but not as much as coal or things like that. Yeah, well, I think you're you're right. There needs to be a debate about this. And why, those, why can't we I, talk about this? Yeah, why can't we talk about it? It's become kind of a sacred cow on the progressive left. And I think there are a lot of vested interests there. But there needs to be a debate. There needs to be a, a debate about the Green New Deal. There sh- could have been a debate about your film, but there was instead a censorship campaign. And so one of the debates should be about how clean uh, renewable energy actually is. And, you know, when you talk about wind, well, wind farms do require massive amounts of land destruction. The film showed that pretty well, what was taking place in the desert, as well as for massive solar farms. Um, I referred to a peer-reviewed study uh, by Alexander Dunlap, who uh, has also written a book about the dark side of wind energy, um, where he went to an indigenous region of Oaxaca, Mexico. And it's, it's always indigenous people who bear the brunt of environmental destruction, the worst. Um, this is an area of Mexico that's considered the best place for wind energy. And what he found was that these supposedly renewable projects, which were proliferating there, largely, this is in his words, largely reinforced income inequality, furthered poverty entrenchment, and increased food vulnerability and worker dependency on the construction of more wind parks, which cumulatively has led to an increase in work-related outmigration and environmental degradation. And one of the uh, you know, environmentally degrading 
aspects of wind energy, as you mentioned, Michael, is that they have these gigantic fiberglass blades that can't be recycled. And so they're piling up in rural dumping sites already across the U.S. Um, Grist magazine, which is a fairly mainstream environmentalist magazine, warned of a solar waste e-glut where megatons of toxic trash are going to pile up when solar panels lose efficiency as they do after you know, 20, 30, 40 years and begin to die. But what the proponents of a Green New Deal as it's written, uh, as it's being sold, want is to power the entire country off of that. So let's look at one place in California uh, that was featured in Planet of the Humans, where solar panels were not just deployed to power homes from the roofs, but were spread across the desert in a very environmentally delicate area where there are many endangered species. I'm talking about the Ivanpah Solar Farm, uh, which is in the Mo- on, on the edge of the Mojave Desert, basically on the edge of a pr- protected area. And if you drive past it, the first time I drove past it, I thought I was driving past a giant prison or it was just this dystopian project with these three thermal towers surrounded by thousands of mirrors. And it essentially hasn't worked. It's only been able to provide about 50% of the energy that it was um, intended to in its first year. Beyond that, it requires natural gas and the burning of fossil fuels to keep the solar thermal towers on at night. Because one of the biggest problems with solar is not just efficiency, it's intermittency. It don't work if the sun don't shine. And so at night, they're using fossil fuels to keep it on. And then finally, you know, 6,000 birds get burned alive every year in that area just to have this project that was touted as green and made everyone feel so much better. But it's really not working. So we want to power the entire economy off that. Who, who is, who's pushing that? Uh, this is someone named Mark Jacobson, who's an engineer at Stanford University. He's really one of the key voices behind the idea of a total transition to so-called renewable energy by 2050. Mark Jacobson is a close ally of Josh Fox. Fox referred to him in his attacks on Planet of the Humans and uh, didn't mention that he has a working relationship with him through a environmental kind of, through, through what they helped try to, they helped found this group called the Solutions Project. But the most important thing about Mark Jacobson's work was he put together this model, kind of a crystal ball showing how the entire economy by 2050 could be powered by supposedly clean energy, uh, renewable energy, like the solar plant I just described. And it's been blown out of the water. Um, Josh Fox never acknowledged this when he cites. It's been attacked by a lot of, a lot of climate uh, scientists by promising something that probably isn't what it's cracked up to be. Right. I mean, 21 leading energy scientists in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences Journal concluded that Jacobson's paper which is the cornerstone of the Green New Deal and the concept of transitioning completely to renewable energy by 2050 was rife with, and this is their words, invalid modeling tools, it contained modeling errors and made implausible and inadequately supported assumptions. I looked a little bit further into some of the criticism and I found in Scientific American um, a review 
of his study, or it's really a model or a prediction. And they found that what, what he imagined was that U.S. hydroelectric dams could add enough turbines and transformers to produce the equivalent of what 1,000 large nuclear or coal plants running at full power are able to produce, which is just insane. And that's to offset all of the massive solar farms and wind projects and their inadequacy. So just damming up enough rivers to do what, I mean, I can't even imagine a thousand large nuclear plants currently running today, but it just doesn't make any sense. So when he got his whole crystal ball shattered on the floor by peer-reviewed scientists, he retaliated against them with a $10 million defamation suit, which he had to withdraw in 2018. Um, you know, legal commentators referred to this lawsuit as vexatious, intended to silence dissent, which sounds kind of familiar. And ultimately, uh, he had to pay SLAP, strategic lawsuit against public participation fees. He had to pay the defendant's legal fees. So this is the kind of... Uh, behavior that flowed into the censorship campaign. And it's to cover up the fact that there's, there are big holes in the arguments that are being put forward that are dangerous. They need to be debated. And then just to bring it back home, this is, again, it's about growth. They want to continue the capitalist growth model, but on supposedly green lines, and it's not possible to do it. So we need to talk about how we start moving away from that model into a more humane and sustainable model that saves our planet. But that's not the conversation they're having. They that's don't want the, to have that. They don't want to have the conversation. I think, you know, some of them might, but the billionaires behind them, yeah. the people like Tom Dinwoody, who supported, was the executive producer of Josh Fox's uh, latest performance. Um, Tom Dinwoody doesn't want to have it because Tom Dinwoody owns close to 40 patents in solar technology. Tom Dinwoody's a multimillionaire who's forging partnerships through the Rocky Mountain Institute with big banks and helping them greenwash themselves. And so Josh Fox must know where his bread is buttered because he doesn't want to have this conversation either. And it's a conversation that anyone who cares about the environment needs to have. We need to be honest about all of these proposals that are being offered and not just to hear the word Green New Deal and then defend it as if it's a sacred cow. When you say Josh Fox's latest performance, you don't mean a movie. Are, are you talking uh, about the, the the one man show he did downtown in New York City yeah. at, the, at the public theater? It didn't seem to go that well. Uh, he got booted. He was booted. It was a monologue where he talks about you know himself being the beta test for propaganda and smears by the oil and gas industry, and he's kind of this martyr figure. Um, but apparently he, according to the New York times, he was so abusive to the staff, uh, that they canceled the show. And then he retaliated by claiming that, uh, they were anti-Semites because they were telling him that he was too loud and too emotional. And that's an anti-Semitic trope. And when I interviewed yeah. him, he was just pouring out insults, telling me I was being duped by, uh, multimillionaire Michael Moore and that you were an eco-fascist. Oh, because I, uh, he said that. We shouldn't. We have no right to bring up the uh, population, the overpopulation of the planet, in the film. That right. that's a racist trope. I think that part of the film is like forty-five seconds long, where where people that Jeff was interviewing brought it up, and uh, I think Jeff's attitude was all voices should be heard in this, and um, 
and so they bring up, you know, the fact that the planet can only hold so many people. And um, I don't know what the, I don't know. Yeah. Can you explain why McKibben and, and Fox and these guys attacked the film for that? Because like within a week, somebody sent me a copy of a Bill McKibben book, a book that was published by written by and published by Bill McKibben a number of years ago called one child. And it's his whole, it's his whole manifesto, McKibben's manifesto. And, and, and every couple gets one child and that's it. I mean, it was, it's, I, this is why I haven't really dealt with any of these because they all just seem whacked out. And, and, the people spoke, the people saw the film, the people responded to the film, millions of people. And so I just didn't think it was worth paying any attention to them because they're just, but, but then I said to myself, geez, you know, the, the left publications that gave them the space to slander and smear me, Jeff, others associated with this film, simply because, you know, they didn't like the fact that we were pointing out how they were in bed with, with wall street and with these corporations and these billionaires and, uh, and that there's a larger discussion to have about how to do renewables, right? Not just do it just cause it's renewable, but to do it so that we don't hurt the planet anymore than we've been hurting. And the larger discussion I want to have, which is, you know, I think the way we've been doing things with the environmental movement hasn't worked. And, um, you can't say that about the other movements during my lifetime. I would say the civil rights movement, uh, made some progress. I would say the women's movement made some progress, not progress as in we're there yet, but are we better off than we were 50 years ago? Um, you know, the anti-war movement made progress and, um, but the environmental movement, Bill McKibben, the reason that's called 350.org, his group is because he said, if we go past 350 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, we're doomed. That's it. There's no turning it back. We can't turn it back once we get to, to 350. We're at 420 right now. After all the years of Bill McKibben and 350 and all this other stuff that they say that they've been doing, I mean, look, I, I don't want to attack them personally because they failed, but we have failed. And and I, I just, you know, and look, you could say the same about me. Mike, you know, you your first film was about Flint, Michigan. You continually talk and have done things about Flint, Michigan. And let me tell you, Flint, Michigan is even worse than before Roger and me. You could say that to me. I'd have to agree. Somewhere along the line, I have failed to save my hometown. But these, but, but I'm not, I don't have any investors that are making money off me trying to save Flint. I'm just doing it because I, I, uh, I'm so emotionally distraught over what's happened to people now the latest this last six years being the poisoning of, of Flint. But, uh, but they have been running our environmental movements for a long time now. Sierra club, one of the worst, I think. And, and uh, Bloomberg letting him in uh, Branson, yeah. letting them all in. And, um, and we lost our way. And why can't they just say that Max? Why can't they just say, look, yes, we all started out with good intentions and we wanted to save the planet and we have failed. And now we may, if we are to believe the McKibben of 10 years ago, we can't go back now. We went past 350 parts per million and now we're fucked. We can't, what are you going to say to that? Well, they, they got an organization that's had a lot of grants and a lot of people to, you know, 350.org. I'm going to change the name now to 420.org. 
550.org? What's the truth? We need the truth. I'm, I'm sorry to go on like this, Max, but I just, uh, this is the, I mean, this is why we made this film. And I'm, 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 I'm like, uh, the, the fact that the people that have tried to shut us down have been the people that say that they are, they're on our side. You know, were Richard Branson and Michael Bloomberg behind the attacks? I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I can't say that, but people who are sponsored by them or loosely affiliated with them certainly were. And the film was provocative because it prevent, it presented many of the most familiar faces of the climate justice movement, essentially PR agents for a billionaire class that's seeking to cash in on the massive $50 trillion profit center that a renewable energy transition represents. And that means continuing to protect the capitalist system, destroying the earth, but uh, behind a green patina, which is really dangerous. It's insidious. So you got Mike Bloomberg, and he kicked in like $60 million to the Sierra Club, which is uh, the premier big green organization, so that it could do its uh, you know, anti-carb or anti-coal efforts. Um, you know, you think Mike Bloomberg is someone who really wants to save the planet? Uh, Richard Branson. I mean, this is someone who helped start the Carbon War Room with Tom Dinwoody, the executive producer of Josh Fox's film at the, which is now at the Rocky Mountain Institute, which, as I mentioned before, is in partnerships with the four major banks in the United States, who are themselves invested in, you know, exploiting tar sands and mining the Arctic and drilling in the Arctic and so on. And then, you, you know, you have the Sunrise Movement, which is sort of one of the, you know, shiny new progressive youth organizations that endorsed Bernie Sanders. And then now it turned around and endorsed Joe Biden. They basically share an office with the Sierra Club. They're one floor below and they've been, as far as I can tell, they've been co-opted and are now funded by Democratic Party billionaires. Uh, and Bill McKibben, I mean, 350.org, as I mentioned, it was set up by the Rockefeller brothers. It's raking in money from billionaires like Jeremy Grantham. You have Eric Schmidt through the, the Google CEO, through the Schmidt Family Foundation and the 11th Hour Foundation. He's supporting um, all kinds of these supposedly green pro projects while he sits on the Pentagon's Defense Innovation Board. And so what I'm building up to here is that the environmental movement as it's presented to the America, the forward-facing one that we all know of, uh, which is responsible for marketing a Green New Deal that is not yet fully defined and which does contain a lot of noble elements, has been co-opted by the 1%. And its most radical and important instincts have been neutralized in the process. What an environmental movement that's effective should be doing is not relying on the top 1% for support, but relying on working people and making partnerships with anti-war organizations and organizations that fight globalization and indigenous groups. But when we have an anti-war rally here, or when we had our rally here in Washington against the coup in Bolivia, when the first indigenous president, a socialist president who slashed poverty in half in his country and protected the environment and preserved the country's natural resources for its people was ousted in a U.S.-backed military coup. These environmental big green groups weren't there, and they should have been there because it's the indigenous voices we should be listening to and because the Pentagon 
is the largest consumer on earth of oil and one of the world's worst polluters, as well as the greatest exporters of violence. But here you have Bill McKibben writing in the New York Review of Books last year that environmentalists should partner with the Pentagon. They should cooperate with the U.S. Defense Department that has destroyed Iraq and Afghanistan because, in Bill McKibben's words, when it speaks frankly, it has the potential to reach Americans who won't listen to scientists. I mean, I cannot think of a better document of the corruption of environmental politics than that Bill McKibben essay, taking people away from anti-war activism, away from anti-imperialism, away from anti-capitalism, away from all of the movements that are the only hope for saving this planet for all of its life and moving it into cooperating with the Pentagon because of its R&D power and its uh, communication potential. It's just shocking. So as I said, Mm. Michael, I just kept peeling back the onion for months, starting with outrage about an indignation at the censorship campaign until I started to reach the ugly center. And I found not a lot of hope within these, uh, this, this sort of NGO nonprofit industrial complex that comprises the climate cartel. But there's a lot of hope out there across the world among people who are living with the consequences of environmental destruction. And those are the ones we should be listening to. Well, especially if they live in the global South on this planet. I mean, you mentioned the the coup in Bolivia, which we've paid no attention to because we've been consumed by Trump and everything Trump related here, but they, but the the coup there, uh, didn't I read where Elon Musk of Tesla uh, was really happy about this coup or backed it, supported it in some way, and and said we something I, you probably know, but this better than I do. That we need more of this, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- I'm glad you brought that up. So, um, first of all, uh, by the time this airs, I might actually be in Bolivia. I have a ticket to go there on Tuesday, and that's to cover their election, which is coming up. And it probably won't be an election. It's probably going to be another coup because the party of Evo Morales, who was removed in a violent military coup, is scheduled to win because indigenous people in Bolivia are the majority. And the U.S.-backed military junta is going to steal the election and then repress everyone. And that is the result of what Evo Morales um, who was the socialist president, democratic socialist president who was removed, has called the lithium coup. Uh, Electric batteries are the future of so-called renewable energy. They power, you know, Tesla cars, which Elon Musk, of Elon Musk's Tesla company. They also power our phones. We're relying on them right now. Uh, The World Economic Forum's Global Battery Alliance reported that the demand for electric batteries will increase 14-fold within the next 10 10 years. That's a lot of money for people who are invested in electric batteries, including uh, Josh Fox's uh, friend and uh, political partner, Marco Kraples, who is a banker and former uh, Tesla CEO. But it also means a lot of damage for people in Congo, for example, uh, where cobalt which is an important mineral used to produce electric batteries, is mined in slavery-like conditions, often by children. It got so bad 
that a dozen Congolese plaintiffs actually sued the big tech companies, um, including including some of the companies that are sponsoring some of these big green, green groups and Elon Musk's Tesla, accusing them of knowingly benefiting from and aiding and abetting the cruel and brutal use of young children to mine cobalt. So lithium is another element that's really important for electric batteries. And 50% of the world's lithium is mined for electric batteries, and much of it, the largest reserves of lithium, are in Bolivia. Under the democratic governance of Evo Morales, lithium mines were managed on a national basis, and the profits that were made were returned to fund social programs for the people. So this new military junta that's in power has pledged to open up lithium and allow foreign investments, which is the dream of the empire and of people like Elon Musk who need cheap lithium to power their cars, make their money, keep their stockholders happy. So back in, um, when was it? July, a random or a, um, a commenter on Twitter challenged Elon Musk and said, uh, this is on a completely unrelated point. He said, you know what wasn't in the best interests of people, the US government organizing a coup against Evo Morales in Bolivia, so you could obtain the lithium there. And Elon Musk, who really has no self-control, he has like about as much thumb control on Twitter as Donald Trump, he responded and he said, We will coup whoever we want. Deal with it. So this is Elon Musk mm. essentially taking credit for the coup in Bolivia, confirming what everyone believed in what Evo Morales said, that it was a lithium coup. And so yeah. now we have to go back to Planet of the Humans and think why this film was so important is it's warning us about the potential damage of this endless growth model being powered by so-called renewable energy forms that will destabilize and already have destabilized governments. Elon Musk and his renewable car, the electric car, the renewable stuff that goes into making a solar panel. It's not renewable. These are fossil fuels. These are natural resources, cobalt, lithium, all the stuff that has to be mined in the third world under slave-like conditions so that we can have our overconsumption continue. And, and, and because uh, Sierra Club and these others are so connected to the billionaire class, they, no matter, in the, even in the best places in their hearts where they really do care about this planet, they they are now they are now paralyzed. They are handcuffed. They cannot speak, and um, and of course that's not the situation with Greta or with AOC. So I'm hopeful that all of us together are going to find a new way. And this is something that I've been putting off, wanting to talk to them about till after the election, because every waking moment right now in these next three weeks has to be spent on getting rid of of Trump. But but that doesn't mean we ignore everything else that's, that's going on. And, and it doesn't mean we start to plan now for post-election how we've got to rethink things post-pandemic, how we have to live differently. We now know we've had a lot of time during this pandemic to think about the, the crap situation we're in. And we don't have to live this way. and We don't have to be this way. So that's, that's just me talking. That's not you or Jeff or anybody else, Max. That's just my optimism that. Um, that the system does not and cannot and will not hopefully co-opt any of our new voices uh, because we need them badly. And, um, and, and I think the door is open there and I, and I have encouraged Jeff and others that 
we should walk through that door. Maybe it won't work, but I, I don't know. That's just, <laughs> that's me. And Penn America, which is a, 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 a civil liberties organization set up for writers so that they would not be censored. This was set up like almost a hundred years ago. And they came out twice to tell these so-called liberals and uh, people on the left to stand down. You're trying to censor people that are trying to raise legitimate questions about what's going on. And I, I just, I mean, what's your take on this? I, you're just attacked mercilessly uh, and it sort of takes on a mob-like element. You might've actually touched on something that is an inconvenient truth as it were. And in this case, I think, you know, this film will be vindicated ultimately once the uh, kind of growth oriented solutions run out. Well, you certainly have vindicated it. Somebody that we didn't know, and, and I mean, knew of you, but uh, in your great work, but uh, we're just stunned that you had chosen to spend, I don't know, God knows how many hours or days or weeks, months doing this 8,000 word investigative piece. <laughs> we were under quarantine, so All right. it wasn't much to do, but, so, but I, I really, I mean, it, it was thanks to the quality of this film that, you know, I was provoked to do it. And, you know, I'm sure that it, I know that it provoked many other people to ask these uncomfortable questions and to explore for themselves. And that's, that's what debate is supposed to do. And so I also, I guess, would thank the people who tried to censor the film because it provoked me to look even more closely. And, uh, you know, it changed my point of view or it, it, it made my point of view, I think, sharper in the process. And, and that's the point of making uh, really provocative films like this. And I think in that, in that sense, it's, it was a success. Well, it certainly feels that way to us. We're so have the, the response, the comments, everything from people who've seen the film have had their eyes opened. And, uh, and I know that's why some of the old guard, some of the one percenters in their so-called environmental movement are so upset uh, because of the impact and the effect it's had. Uh, if, if it had had no impact, we never would have heard from any of them. But the, the fact that they would put their own integrity on the line and become so unhinged over this one movie uh, really told us, wow, we were on to something here. We are on to something. Probably it's even worse than we know. And, um, and so now we have, to, we have to do the next film and we have to stay on top of this because we have to save this planet and the, and the saving of it. It can't be in the hands of the billionaires uh, because they have too much of a short-term interest involved here. And that is to get as filthy rich as they can and hope that a future generation will figure out how to save the planet. I think that's their plan, actually. So thank you, Max. Thank you for writing this. Uh, Jeff spent uh, over a decade making this uh, very important film. And uh, um, those who have the thought they had the power, the money to stop it, uh, were not successful. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, he had to deal with a lot of their, a lot of their crap. And, um, so thank you for coming out of nowhere, doing your own investigation and, and telling the world, uh, not only how true this film is, um, how dangerously true the film is if we ignore it. And, um, so I thank you for that. I thank Jeff for making it Jeff and Ozzy. Um, we'll have you back on. Uh, we're going to get into this more, uh, once the election is over. And uh, in the meantime, people can see Planet of the Humans on Michael Moore YouTube channel. It's 
all you got to do is just go to YouTube, type in Michael Moore channel, and you can watch it for free. Um, and you can go to planetofthehumans.com. Uh, Jeff and Ozzy are doing a virtual tour of Canada uh, starting next week. Uh, they've, they've already got uh, 33,000 admissions online of people who are going to tune in uh, to hear what they have to say um, and more more knowledge and data and facts or whatever from Planet of the Humans. So if you care about this issue, uh, uh, go to planetofthehumans.com uh, for that uh, and go to the gray zone. That's gray with an A, gray zone. Um, and there you can read Max's incredible article about Planet of the Humans um, and, uh, it will tell you about the fight. Really, you'll have a sense of what's ahead. If we're going to wrestle control out of where we need to go and how we're going to save this planet, um, it has to be in the hands of the people, the people. Um, so, um, please read Max's incredible investigative piece. And, um, we'll be back here on Rumble very, very soon, next couple of days, um, We've got a lot of work here in front of us uh, to make sure we don't take for granted one single bit what the polls are saying, how great uh, that Biden is doing or how badly that Trump is doing. Uh, he's an evil genius. And believe me, they're already working on ways to make sure that uh, he doesn't leave the White House. We all I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So I'll stick with Rumble here. And uh, we are all going to do the work uh, that we need to do uh, to um, remove Trump. But also remember that which gave us Trump, uh, as I've said many times before, uh, he just didn't happen. Uh, he's a logical uh, end game to what we've allowed to take place in this country for far too long. Um, so let's think about a better world and what we're going to do to make that better world post-Trump, post-pandemic. Um, Max, thank you for being on Rumble. Thanks again for having me. And um, uh, thank you to everybody who's listening. Thank you to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, our editor and sound engineer, Nick Quaz, and uh, to uh, our underwriters and everybody uh, who supports this uh, podcast. Um, we will be back with you soon. And um, uh, good luck to Jeff and Ozzy as they virtually crisscross the great nation of Canada uh, in, the, in the coming week. Um, and also the, the sort of the Netflix of Canada, it's called Crave. Uh, is also going to start showing Planet of the Humans. So, but you can still see it for free in, in the U.S. and I think other places in the world on my YouTube channel. So be sure and watch this uh, beautiful movie. All right, everybody, that's it. Uh, let's get to work. Uh, let's register some voters. Let's do the Orange Crush. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. <laughs>